Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, as always, Liam Edwards, and thank you for joining me for a certainly long overdue episode that also happens to be the 69th of the show. Joining me this week is a very special guest, a guest who doesn't quite work within the realms of the video game industry, but his thoughts and opinions on the industry and its trends and forecasts are incredibly well respected, if not always agreed with. He seems to be one of the very few people within the industry whose opinions actually garner solo news articles, forum posts, and just general posts all across the web. He's famous for predicting what will happen to video game companies, trends that will appear in the industry, and although he's often quite right, thanks to butting heads with video games over the years, it seems that people kind of love it when he's wrong as well. His actual title is that of Research Analyst for Wedbush Securities, but you'll probably know him as the former host of Pack Attack back on the now-defunct GameTrailers.com, but he's also now the host of his own show called Pack Factor on the website Sifted.com. I'm very excited to say, and incredibly interested to hear his eight, it's the forecaster of video game doom himself, a man who needs no introduction, Mr. Michael Pachter. Hello, Michael. I, uh, I think doom might be overstated, and actually, doom, doom 3 could have made my list, now that you remind me of that game. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Happy How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Just kind of waking up. One cup of coffee into my day. One cup, one cup in. Okay, that's pretty good then. Not too early. Not not too early. I've been going for an hour and a half. That's fine. Okay, that's good. That's not too early. And for once in my life, due to my position in the world being in Japan, it's actually not that late. So I I thank you for accommodating to a not unreasonable time <laughs> as a guest well, this time. Of course. <laughs> Very difficult to record with people across your side of the world. But thank you so much for joining me, Michael. And as I said in the introduction. You're sort of on the, uh, not in the video game industry, yet have incredible influence within the games industry. How does that happen? I'm really not sure why anybody cares what I have to say, but um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm employed uh, to help investors <clears throat> understand public companies. And uh, among the 22 companies that I know a lot about are five video game publishers. It used to be 11 five that are remaining and my job is to forecast their earnings and I'm pretty good at it and in order to figure out what Activision or Electronic Arts are going to earn I have to you know come up with a forecast for how their games will sell um, fortunately for me uh, there's a term in statistics called uh, an error term where you make a mistake and when you come up with a statistical model to forecast something you necessarily make a lot of mistakes. And in statistics, over the long run, if you're good at your job, all the errors cancel one another out. So they, they say that the, the term there is the sum of the error terms equals zero. So I can be wrong on any game by you know one or two or five million units, as long as I'm wrong on other games by the same number of units the other direction. And then it adds up oh, okay. to, to a good forecast. So I'm pretty good at uh, adding it all up. I'm not so good at individual games. My biggest miss was uh, Grand Theft Auto 3. I was absolutely convinced that no one would want to be the bad guy and, and kill cops. And so I assumed that game would sell 350,000 units and it sold 25 million. So I just barely missed on that. <laughs> just, just a little bit. Just barely. Um, but 
it's funny because the video game industry, I think, as we all have come to terms with, thanks to the sort of nature of it now, it's not really an industry where people take mistakes lightly, um, both as fans and also critics alike and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it must be difficult because you're you're someone known for making predictions and people always love to prove people wrong for some reason. I, how, how do you sort of deal with that when, you know, you're making these predictions and you know that it may be in six months time. I remember there was a Kotaku article with former Final Games guest Jason Schreier, who um, he like compared your predictions, but three years apart and you were for the majority correct on what you would predicted and that kind of thing. But how do you sort of deal with the, the people out there who are waiting for you to be wrong for some well, reason? I, I'm uh, I'm a fan of Jason's and I think that uh, his his article is pretty funny because he picked, I think, 10, 10 predictions. And obviously he just chose 10 that he knew about. I make every single month, I predict uh, sales of at least a dozen games every month. So there's 150 right there. And, you know, I predict sales of consoles every month. So typically there are three consoles, maybe sometimes in handhelds there's four. And again, there's another 50 predictions every month. So, you know, the idea that Jason could pick 10 of my, my 200 annual predictions, he picked 10 over the, a three or four year period. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably, as I said, I'm, I'm probably never right. I think I've gotten a game forecast right once. Um, I remember in 2002, I thought that Spider-Man would sell one and three quarter million units and it actually sold 1.750 million units. So, you know, short of that, I haven't been right ever, um, but you know it depends on the eye of the beholder what's close enough. I'm right on earnings all the time, and again, when I said game forecast, I predict earnings for 22 companies that I cover every quarter, and again, I'm I'm right far more often than I'm wrong, but you know spot on. No, I mean I miss by a penny here and there all the time. And companies that make a lot of money, you know, if you have a company that makes two dollars or three dollars a share in a quarter. It's easy to be off by a penny. If a company mm. makes one cent, it's hard to be off by a penny. So you know, again, it's just depends on the company. But I, I, you know, I don't care. I, how do I handle being wrong? Um, you, you, it's sort of like being a you know a quarterback on a football team. You can't get down if you throw a pass and it's incomplete. I mean, obviously, no quarterbacks ever completed a hundred percent of his passes. No soccer player's ever scored 100% of his shots. It just doesn't happen. And same with goalies. If somebody scores and you give up, then what's the point of doing that for a living? Obviously, people are going to score occasionally. So, no, I don't care if I'm wrong. So then talking about this year and Nintendo releasing a brand new console and that kind of thing with the Switch, um, how difficult is it? to look at a company like Nintendo, one that isn't majoritarily American anyway, most of the decisions are made here in Japan, um, how is it difficult or different to analyze a company like Nintendo where their previous console, I mean, being generous, was a failure, um, and then looking at this brand new piece of technology that doesn't quite fit anywhere, it doesn't it doesn't sort of fit itself as a home console or a portable exactly. It does both, but not to the degree that other devices do. Um, and then have to forecast or people ask your opinions like, is this going to be successful? Is this not going to be successful? And then when you see 
it right now and it looks to be incredibly successful is that the kind of thing that you you'd expect or is that really difficult to predict and it surprises you even for how long you've been doing your job it's always difficult while supply and demand are out of balance so until um, literally probably first of october or the last week or so in september um, you couldn't find any switch units on the shelves but they have started to show up in the last two to three weeks. So now at least we can compare actual sales and, and forecast demand based on actual sales. But when they're sold out, you know, if they sell 500,000 units in a month, you don't know if demand is 10 million or 501,000. You're just not sure. Um, ah, okay. Once they're in balance, if sales jump to 700,000 or a million, then I can forecast them. What I'm seeing so far, you know, the idea that they're, they suddenly were in stock at the end of September suggests to me that demand isn't anywhere near as great as some of the forecasters think. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this console selling well above 100 million in its lifetime. I've seen numbers of 150 and 180. Um, I think the number is below 100 million, so I think the number is probably 75 million, but it's still early. I'll, I'll have a much better forecast by March of 2018. Once I get through a holiday season, once I've got a full year of sales, I think I'll be able to forecast. And I'd be really surprised if the console is selling more than a million per month next March. If it is, then it's got a chance of cracking 100. If it's selling 2 million a month, it's got a chance of cracking 150. But I don't think you're going to see numbers like that. Will, but I, I have. I have time to wait and see, so I guess I'll wait and see. It's funny because, you know, you said like 75 million, like 100 million to 75 million for a company like Nintendo seems like not that big of a difference. If you're hitting like 75 million after what happened with the Wii U, you're hitting almost like 3DS, DS numbers with that. That, I guess they don't really care if it, if it is predicted to get to something like that. Or is there like a massive difference between getting to 75 million or surpassing that to 100 million and reaching something like what we saw with the Wii? Uh, well, the DS sold more than 25 million every year from 2007 through 11. So for five years, it sold more than 25 million a year. And, you know, I think it only, its sales were truncated only because of the launch of the 3DS. Um, the 3DS has averaged below uh, 10. I mean, it probably sold 13 in the first year or two. And it's been six or seven in the last couple of years. So the the DS sold probably 175 million and the 3DS probably closer to you know, 60 or 70. Um, so there's a big difference. And, and you know, PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 sold 80 million a piece. Uh, PlayStation 4 is it about going to be about 80 million by year end uh, and on its way to over 100, you know, probably 120 or 140. So I think Nintendo would like to be that successful. And, you know, that that's why I think these forecasts matter. I think there's bragging rights about, you know, being the best-selling console of a generation. But you're right. Yeah. At $75 million, Nintendo will make plenty of money on the console and on software. So then talking about you personally then, stepping away from the sort of, you know, role you have as your day job and then also being the presenter of, you know, Pack Factor and that kind of thing and talking about these kind of facts, how much time do you personally actually get to play games? 
Like I imagine you get sent games all the time from companies and also you have to look at the games you're forecasting and that kind of thing. But how much time do you personally get to like invest in the hobby? Are you invested in the hobby? Um, you know, in fairness, some games I don't play at all because they don't change sufficiently that I think I have to play them. So I don't think I've played Madden football. Well, I know I haven't played Madden football this generation. So I, I have not loaded up an Xbox One or PS4 version of Madden. Um, and I probably last played Madden in 2010. Uh, FIFA, I tend to lo- lo- you know to load up once a generation. And I have to say, I, I did it uh, a year ago. But uh, I probably won't even bother playing this year's FIFA. I'm not sure that there's enough difference for me to care. Um, and I you know, tried to play with Ultimate Team just because I wanted to understand it. I haven't played a, a golf game in over 10. So Tiger Woods is still, you know, his face is still on the cover of my last golf game. So games like that, I don't care that much. Um, I tend to try Call of Duty games because at least each year there's a different setting and a different story. Um, so I probably have played everyone for an hour or more. And, you know, I finished, I last finished, I think, Modern Warfare 3. I haven't finished a Black Ops game. Um, and I do not play multiplayer um, on most multiplayer games because I don't care enough. So obviously Titanfall, I tried multiplayer because that was the only way to play it. Star Wars Battlefront, same thing. Uh, but I tend not to bother. You know, so, so Titanfall 2, I only played the single player campaign and liked it. Um, but now I, you know, I'd say I probably play about 20 games a year. Uh, average length, probably two hours. And again, every once in a while, I get into a game where I decide I have to finish it. I played uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild for probably three hours and then realized I was doing everything wrong and I was you know, I was building up the wrong uh, attributes. So I started again and then, then realized I'm going to have to put 100 hours in this game. So I put it aside and I'll probably play it you know, when my wife and kids are on vacation, which tends to be in the spring. I'll have a week by myself and I'll, and I'll run through that game and try to finish it. Excellent. Well, the, we're lucky because we're sending you away to a deserted place with eight games. And these are actually eight games we've we discussed a little bit before we started recording. These are games that fit it under the criteria of you got addicted and you actually finished. So I'm happy that you've chosen those eight games. <laughs> yeah, then I actually, well, and again, I did like all of them enough to say that I would take them with me and probably enjoy the rest of my years playing them. Well, we're going to jump into it then, because I think it's about time that we start talking about the eight and preparing you for to take you away from your analyst role and your job as the host to ship you away to a deserted place where you can just peacefully play video games for as long as you want. Perfect. Thank you. 
So jumping into Michael's first game of his eight, and it's a very surprising one. Um, it's never appeared on the show before, um, but for a very, I think, very long time during the sort of Xbox Live era, this was one of the most played games, I think, on that system and also on PC as well. And it had numerous uh, sequels and spin-offs. It's a tower defense game. Uh, which do- it's a genre that doesn't really appear on final games either. Even though tower defense games tend to have quite a lot of replayability, it's a game developed by PopCap Games and it was published by Electronic Arts. It originally released for PC back in 2009, and then a little later for the Xbox Live Arcade, which sort of made it blow up and became one of the most played games on that system. It's Plants vs Zombies. So, Michael, why is the first game on your list Plants vs Zombies? You know, as when you asked me to think about the eight games that I would you know, want to be want to have with me if stranded on on an island, it it occurred to me that what really matters is replayability, and the games that didn't make my list are it doesn't mean I didn't like them. I mean, there are plenty that I just love, but I have no interest in playing again. And I think the analogy is to you know watching a television series. So I don't want to watch the the TV show Twenty Four again first season because i know how it ends and i don't really care to to revisit that um yeah i i am absolutely addicted to tower defense games and uh probably my favorite game of all time is a is a little scratch game a little pencil drawn game called desktop tower defense um i got into an argument with uh totillo actually at kotaku uh, who somehow said who actually who told me his wife could beat and so I, I, I actually went on a mission, and for a time, I had a top 50 global score in that game. Um, somebody wow. fig- figured out a way to cheat, and so they put their name in the top 100 slots, all with the same score. So they, they figured out a way never to die. But I really, I mean, I literally beat uh, poor Totillo's wife's score by about 10x. Um, so I, that was the beginning of my exposure to tower defense game. That was probably, you know, 2002 or three or something. Um, and when I played Plants vs. Zombies, it just resonated with me. I mean, what a fun game. Um, funny, funny story. This really happened since you asked me to be on the podcast and before today. One of my 17-year-old daughters actually asked me if we had Plants vs. Zombies on the Xbox One. And I said, we don't, but I can download it. She said, would you please, can we play it this weekend? And we ended up not playing this weekend, but we're going to do it again next weekend. Um, so when you said about you know the game coming out on PC and then on Xbox, I actually owned it on the Xbox and on my home PC and on my work PC. I actually purchased it three <laughs> times. That's how much I liked it. And... You didn't get the iPad version then as well, just for the the I, time in between leaving the you leaving your house to go to the office. So my uh, my my guilty little admission is that uh, although there are five or six iPads in my home, none of them are mine. So I don't I don't physically personally own one. Uh, okay. Every they they all belong to all the other people in my home. I just uh, my wife has I think three. So you know, I don't, no, I did not buy the iPad version. Uh, but yeah, the game is uh, it's fun. It's challenging. Uh, you know, I thought it, it just was well set up, and it's a tower defense game that ends in a boss battle, which was fun. Um, and, you know, I've probably blown through that game at least a dozen times, starting from the beginning and going to the boss battle at least a dozen times. 
and I like it. I mean, it's one of those things like desktop tower defense where I feel like each time I play through, I can actually do better and I feel it and I notice it and it's just fun to be as efficient as possible in, in setting up your defenses. So I could play that game again and again and again. And if I ever were stranded on a desert island, I'm sure I wish that I had it to play. How did you feel about the sequels that came after? And then talking about the Xbox One uh, Plants vs. Zombies, wasn't that like a shooter as well? There was a shooter spinoff. I'm not really sure. I can't remember quite Guard, what the Garden name Warfare. was. Garden Warfare. Garden Warfare, that was it, wasn't um, it? It was kind of like a Team Fortress 2 right. spinoff. How did you feel about the sequels? Fun, but not the same. Um, so, you know, they were different. And no, I, I didn't want to go you know, on a rail going around shooting things. That wasn't fun. Uh, to me, the, the the fun part was protecting, you know, your home from the zombie invasion. And I mean, and the funny thing is, you know, it obviously didn't happen to me after my first playthrough. But if the zombies got through and ate your brain, so that was horrible. So, uh, <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I mean, I thought the, the spinoffs were not that fun, which is pretty much why there is no pop cap anymore. I mean, they've kind of wound it down to where there's nobody left at the pop cap. None of the founders are there. Um, none of the you know, notable people like Jeff Green are there any longer. Uh, Garth Shoto, the, the PR guy, is not there anymore. So there's not much left. And so I don't expect that you'll see anything that's like the originals. It's so weird because they, I remember for a very clear long time, almost every E3, I think from 2010 onwards, there was always a segment of you know Microsoft's showcase or something that was about what PubCap were doing or... Some, uh, something related to Plants vs. Zombies and that kind of thing. And, and in fairness, you know, I think that the consumer has moved away from single-player games. So, you know, we, we all of my games, by the way, are single-player. And, you know, we, we were talking about this offline, but, you know, the, the closure of Visceral and, you know, EA's apparent lack of commitment to single-player games, uh, I think that's really a reflection of where they see the market. And I think that's unfortunate because I think some of the most talented game makers on the planet make narrative-driven single-player games. And, and that's what I want to play. And maybe this, this is a function of my age, but that's what I enjoy. And, and I think a lot of gamers do as well. Um, unfortunately, you know, if we only buy multiplayer games, that's all we're going to get as a choice in the future. And it's very hard even to make money from single-player games if you can't have this sort of, you know, this trend we're seeing with loot boxes and that kind of thing and a way of making money outside of the initial just sort of uh, market price of selling the game at retail and that kind of thing, whereas with multiplayer games, they have longer legs and that kind of thing. Um, is this, as an analyst, you see, I think we might as well touch on it now because, as you said, all of your games that you've chosen are single-player games. Um, do you see, or did you foresee this trend before of games basically heading towards multiplayer focused money sort of making outside of just the initial retail price as being sort of the only thing available to players now? Cause even with like games like Gran Turismo Sport that we've just seen a game that's come out is kind of only multiplayer focused and there is very little single player in that kind of game. I I didn't and it, just the opposite, you know, back 
uh, more than a decade ago, probably in 2004, I thought multiplayer was a fad. And I thought that the primary motivation for gamers to choose a game was to escape. And so I think you know, the, the concept of your podcast makes sense. You're on a desert island. You're, you're away from people. You can't interact. What are you going to play? And I think that most people who played games before 2004 were interested in escape. When you go to the movies in the theater, you don't sit around and talk with your friends about what's going on on the screen. You sit back and you're all by yourself, even if you're in a big group of people. And I thought, you know, that's how entertainment usually is enjoyed. Um, imagine people listening to music on their phone. They wear you know, headset or their you know, earbuds. So they're escaped. And that's what games used to be. Um, I think that the advent of, you know, all, all the time, real-time communication, so Snapchat, you know, text, anything, anywhere that you can go, you know, talk to your friends. Um, I think we have a generation now of people who want to be connected all the time in everything they do, including games. And I think that, you know, there's nothing unhealthy about that, but it's taken over the games industry. And as you pointed out, the publishers have focused on monetizing that phenomenon, which means keep people engaged and, and consistently offer them something to buy. And so the more you can sell them, the more you, the publisher, make in profit. Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people resent being on the hook for more spending. And they think that they feel as if they, they spend $60, 40 pounds on the game that they should get a complete experience for their $60. And, you know, the publishers that have been screwing up are the ones who offer uh, microtransactions that you, you know, that are necessary to complete the game. That really angers the gaming community. The publishers that are really good at it are you know, guys like Blizzard who offer microtransactions that don't assist you in winning the game at all, um, you know, that are purely cosmetic. And, you know, the balance in between is probably something like Destiny, where you can, I forgot what they call it, but you can buy a grave dance, and you can dance on somebody's grave and, and lord over them that you just killed them. I mean, that's fun, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I think that, uh, I think microtransactions are good for investors and the publishers, not necessarily good for consumers, and especially if they engender resentment. Do you think publishers even really care? I mean, ah. gamers, gamers kind of will get angry, but realistically, they will just buy it anyway and play and give their money. Yeah, that's fair. And and <laughs> uh, you know, I think that I think that what we're actually seeing is analogous to you know the old model being motion pictures, where you purchase a ticket and you enjoy the experience for a few hours and you're done versus now television series where you come back every week and keep going for many years. So, you know, that's how games have changed. They used to be self-contained experiences, you know, start and finish in a finite amount of time required, and now they're open-ended experiences. So from the publisher perspective, if you play my game for six hours or ten hours, sure, I'll sell it to you for $60. But if you're going to play my game for a thousand hours then you should keep paying. And, and I think that's fair. And I think as a consumer, if, you know, if you're getting a thousand hours of enjoyment, if you're going to play Call of Duty 20 hours a week for 52 weeks, then maybe it should cost you more than $60.
That's a fair point. Um, but what about this sort of for not forced, but this sort of trend of like loot boxes and and having these additional extras that sometimes are just additional extras that if you happily want to pay for it because you do, as you said, you know, play Call of Duty for fifty two weeks. Um, uh, but what about the people who just want to play like Shadow of Mordor and don't want to be interrupted or be prompted by you know thinking they have to pay to complete the game or to get better items in the game or they're being forced to do stuff what about that kind of thing hey the balance is the key and you know getting uh, the consumer the player to feel indifferent between grinding out you know the experience and earning something versus you know cutting the corner and buying it is an art I mean that's something that that if the balance is right, consumers don't complain. If the balance is wrong, they do. Uh, and I actually don't remember the units, but I, I believe in like Halo 5, every minute that you play, you get the equivalent of a gold coin. And every you know, 250 minutes or so, you've earned enough gold coins to buy a loot box. So I think that number is pretty close. So if you play 40 hours, then you get 10 loot boxes. If you play zero hours and you have you know, twenty-five dollars, you get ten loot boxes. And there are items in the loot boxes that aren't cosmetic. There are weapons and you know and, and ammunition and power-ups and health packs and things. Also, those items exist in the game, so you can find them or you can earn them. Um, but but they're in loot boxes, and everybody has you know an equal opportunity to play enough hours to to earn a loot box. And if you know. I don't think anybody playing Halo 5 cares if I go in and spend two or $300 because I'll be a level one player and I'll suck because I haven't played the game and they're going to kill me quickly anyway. Um, so I think that there's a little, there's little resentment in that type of a game. If the balance is out of whack and if you're right, if the gameplay stops and they, they essentially insist you spend money or you can't advance, people will quit playing the game. So getting that balance right matters a lot and you know the games that are very very successful with microtransactions like fifa ultimate team um people feel like it's balanced appropriately so moving forward then especially considering you are someone who has only chosen single player games for your final games list when you have to you know give these forecasts and that kind of thing do you get to give maybe your little snippet of advice to these companies and does it maybe is it difficult to say, oh yeah, you have to focus on multiplayer because that's where the majority of your sales is going to come from and that kind of thing, even though you yourself want to see these single-player games? I, I First of all, they don't really care what I think, so uh, they, my <laughs> advice is not, not solicited and so t- tends not to be given. Um, so no, I've never told them to focus on one or the other. It's their job and they'll figure it out. Um, interestingly, I did offer a piece of advice to EA they essentially looked at me like I was a complete lunatic and rejected my advice out of hand. And, and their response was, why would we do that? And my advice was that in games like FIFA, any game that has Ultimate Team, that they credit the entire purchase price of the game in uh, in-game currency. So if you spend $60 or £40, pounds, they give you $60 or £40 pounds of in-game currency to spend in Ultimate Team. And they looked at me like I had three eyes. Like, what kind of a moron are you? Why would we ever do that? And I said, because the people in the game would 
spend the money. And then they get more people trying Ultimate Team because they have $60 burning a hole in their pocket. And they said, but the person who spends 300 would start spending 240 because we gave him $60 worth of free stuff. And I said, no, that guy would spend 360 And they told me I was crazy. And I literally pushed back CEO and CFO. And I said, how much money do you guys spend in, uh, in, in game purchases? And the answer was, we've never spent money ever. And as you get through my games, I've, I've spent money in all of them. Um, I'm like, you guys don't understand. I'm pretty much a whale in Candy Crush, for example. Like I, and I didn't start spending money until they started giving me free stuff. So I, I'm amazed that these companies don't understand that if you give people free stuff, then they learn how to spend money and they'll spend more. But they didn't agree. So yeah. that's the last piece of advice I've given them, I've offered. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think that's sort of telling of what these companies sort of decide and do. And it's sort of always a lot of it is, does seem to be negativity or negative news, especially, you know, with this visceral news recently. And of course we're going to see more of these loot boxes and that kind of thing in the future. Um, but for now, let's try and stick with the single player focus then and holding on to that glimmering light of great crafted single player experiences with your list. I think it's about time we move on to the next game on your list, which it happens to be one of the modern uh, single player greats, I think, one of the highest rated single player games of recent memory. So let's listen to some music from this next game and also talk about the island in which we're going to send you. So before we jump into the second game, the second game on your list, Michael, we have to talk about the island in which we are going to send you. Now, on final games, uh, we obviously give you eight games to take with you to play. So we're not, although we are deserting you in a random place, um, we don't want you to be too uncomfortable about where you are. You know, you have to be able to play the eight games. Um, so we allow you the choice of deciding in which uh, island or place you want to be deserted but the caveat is that it has to be from video games it has to be a world or space from video games so in all the video games you've played over the years and all the worlds and stuff you know about is there a place that you wouldn't mind being deserted oh gosh uh <laughs> probably any any location from any mario game they're always kind of pretty Oftentimes, I get what was it, uh, Super Mario Sunshine. Oftentimes, uh, you know, it's tropical, so 
Atlantic. Yeah, Delphi, Delfino, Delfino Island. There you That's go. a very good choice. Perfect. Yes. I, you I want for, to be sent to Delfino Island? I forgot the name of that place, and I remember playing the game, but it's not in my top eight. Yes, that would be great. Excellent. Well, you know, tropical beads, tropical sands, and none of those really annoying residents, because um, it is deserted, yes. and they're, they're kind of annoying, those little weird gray uh, hula scoot wearing people. <laughs> so none of those guys. But you can chill on the beach and play this next game alongside uh, Plants vs. Zombies. The next game is a first-person sort of puzzle platform shooter um, that the first game took the world by storm and became a meme with the whole cake is a lie thing. But I think it truly is the second game that gets revered as being the perfect uh, version. It's a game developed by Valve Corporation and written by Eric Wolpow and Czech Falsic, who are both no longer at the studio, produced by Gabe Newell, released on PC, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360 back in 2011. It's the puzzle game Portal 2. Now, Michael, why is Portal 2 the game you're taking with you? You know, I think I just have a, a an affinity for puzzle games, and uh, I was obsessed with this game. I played it over and over and over again. Um, there was a counter on each level that counted the, the minimum number of portals to get through the level, and I was obsessed and I did, in fact, play every single level but one and got the minimum number of portals to get through the level. And the one, I probably played 50 times. I actually don't remember what level it was. But I probably played it 50 times, and I kept missing by one. And then I realized that there was no that the answer had to be an even number of portals, and I kept completing it, let's say, you know, 12, and it said the minimum was 11. And I realized that you would end up on the wrong side you know, at the end. So I think that they were screwing around with me. I think they were playing with my mind. Um, that's when I gave up trying to, to beat every level in the minimum number. But um, there also was a minimum number of steps. So if I were on a desert island, I would probably try to get through each, uh, each level in the minimum number of steps. I haven't done that yet. But I, I like puzzle games. I just think they are super fun. And... Uh, Portal 2 in particular, because there were, you know, Portal 1 didn't have this, but there were things in Portal 2 that you just couldn't get through the level unless you did it a dozen times and it would take you forever to figure it out. Um, the very last level, and I played this game, I'm certain, you know, the week it came out, um, the very last level took me about 30 or 40 tries before I figured out what to do. And I'm not going to ruin the game for those who haven't played it, but I didn't know what to do at the very end took me a, a bunch of trial and error before I figured it out. And I like games like that. I like games that you don't really know what to do and you have to keep trying to, to figure it out until you get there. I, I haven't played Cuphead yet, but I understand Cuphead is like that. It's not a puzzle game per se, but, but then you can't get through any levels um, just by intuition. You have to keep trying again and again and again and failing and dying. So that'll probably be my next game to play. I think there's quite a big difference in the difficulty between Portal 2 and Cuphead. But I've, I've heard Cuphead's impossible. Very welcome. Yeah, but I don't, yeah. you know, I, uh, no, and I'm ready Very for welcome impossible. to try. Yeah, and again, but it's impossible single player, so there's no embarrassment if you die a lot. I mean, I'm okay with that. So talking about Portal 2 then, because um, a lot of people talk about Portal 2 in terms of its writing and its storytelling, encapsulating it within this puzzle game, that's a lot of fun as well. 
when you play sort of single player games, I know we talked about Plants vs. Zombies and Portal 2 first, but are, is, well, not are, is story in games and that sort of world building important to you when you play games, or are you more just about the gameplay? Uh, you know, I'd say in fairness, uh, probably until Portal 2, I rarely played a game with the sound on. So, um, I, you know, at Portal 1, I don't really think I cared that GLaDOS would talk to me every every once in a while and, and guide me through. In Portal 2, um, the voice acting really got to me. Uh, I forgot the guy's name, Stephen, whatever, the big six foot nine British guy. Um, uh, Stephen Merchant. Merchant, yeah. He, he was amazing, and uh, gosh, I'm blanking on the other guy's name, too. The guy that won the Academy Award for Um, he was he was the he was the uh, industrialist who spoke, but um, really great voice acting, and it really I, I mean it mattered to the story, um, really interesting, and I actually did have the sound on. And again, single player games I normally don't care. I don't care about anything. Um, Doom is the only game I can remember ever playing where I had to have the sound on because I kept dying if I didn't hear things coming. But in Portal, I actually cared about the story a lot. Answer is no. I don't normally listen that carefully. I do listen to Bioshock games. The story matters in those, um, so I care. Um, but I like. I don't think I had on my next two choices. I don't think I had the sound on often at all because the dialogue was on screen, so you could read what people were saying. I was going to say it's very interesting because I was getting ready to basically ask you the same question about the next two games, considering the two games they are. So I think we can jump into the first of the next two games, which are both related. Um, so let's listen to some music from this next game, and let's, of course, dive straight into it. game on michael's list then as we sort of talked a little bit about at the end then the next game is an action role-playing game so very story heavy <laughs> lots of dialogue lots of music um it's an action role-playing game that's completely open world it was a reinvention of this series um, by a different developer this developer being bethesda game works um published by bethesda softworks directed by todd howard it released back in 2008. I can't believe it's almost 10 years since this game released for PC, PlayStation 3, and Xbox 360. It is one of the highest rated open world games and a game I personally love myself. It's Fallout 3. Um, it's funny. My wife has a name for Fallout 3. She calls it That Fucking Game. Um, it's the first game I remember ever playing where I was obsessed in, in completing everything. So um, I actually played through the game three times, and 
you know, once is a good guy, once is a didn't blow up Megaton, and once is a bad guy, and I did. Um, and then I played it once just to go through the main mission, the main quests. I think there were seven or something. I get through it quickly, and it took me probably five hours to get through it. Um, but I, on the third go around, I mean, the, when I played as a bad guy, I was determined to discover everything, to get every weapon, to find every artifact, to uncover every spot on the map. And I did. And it took me uh, hundreds of hours, probably 200 hours. Um, I, and I don't know what it was about that game that got me motivated to do that, but I just had so much fun. I literally probably played it, you know, three times a week for two months in order to get to uh, get those 200 hours in. And uh, I then bought all the DLC and played all every every bit of that, and was relieved that uh, the main character had an alternate ending in the in the DLC. Um, I just loved the the world. I loved the dialogue. I loved everything about it. Again, I kept the sound relatively low or off because uh, when people talked to you, it was you know, it was on screen, so you could read yeah. what was going on. Um, okay, but, but I. Love their games. I, you know, and the funny thing is, I'm not an Elder Scrolls guy. Um, I have played those games, but I'm not. I don't have as much fun, you know, slaying dragons with a sword. I just that to me is tedious. And <laughs> well, and, you know, and again, I mean, I have another game on my list where the sword is the main weapon, but uh, I just don't like. To me, dragon slaying is repetitive, and the crazy thing is. You know, shooting mutants in the head isn't. I don't know why. I mean, obviously, anybody could find anything with that head. Uh, but I thought that, you know, the, the whole system of perks, you know, like I did, I, I remember the perk that I loved the most was Bloody Mess. If you shoot, if you make a headshot, their head explodes. Like, that was fun. And my kids were, my kids were born in 2000. So my kids were, whatever, eight or nine. And they would just explode into laughter if I ever blew a mutant's head off. They thought that was really fun. <laughs> um, so my wife thought it was hor- horrific, but you know that that. So I, you know, Fallout Three really got me, um, and uh, to this day, probably remains my favorite game. Wow, favorite game is it? And you said you'd played like two hundred hours, and we're going to talk about the sequel to this game. Well, not well, the mainline series sequel to this game. Um, is it also your most played game? You said you'd put like 200 hours in, but Plants vs. Zombies sounds like you played that game a lot too. Yeah, I doubt that I spent that many hours on Plants vs. Zombies. Probably 100, but I, you know, because I played through, I, I don't think Plants vs. Zombies takes more than 10 hours from start to finish. Um, so I, I probably haven't finished it even 10 times. But Fallout, as I said, um, you know, the third time I played it, I ignored the main and I just went off discovering everything. So, you know, early in the game, they kind of train you, you know, if you played it more than once, you learn which weapons work, you know, which weapons make it easy. So my very first time through Fallout 3, I remember being terrified of mutants. They were just too strong. You couldn't kill them with your stupid little handgun. You know, but, yeah. but you know, get yourself a uh, plasma rifle and you can take them down with one headshot. So... You know, it just took me a while to figure out what weapons worked. And then once you get the right weapons, I just, I liked everything about it. I liked the way that you could repair weapons and weapons would degrade. I mean, it seemed more realistic to me than, uh, than most other games. So I, I really liked it. 
Excellent. Well, I think we might as well then jump into straight into the next game. It's not something we usually do. Usually we'll separate them by music, but the music is so very similar for these two next games. And we can just jump straight into the next game that you're going to cho- uh, that you have chosen, which is the mainline sequel to Fallout 3, being Fallout 4, also developed by Bethesda Game Studios and published by Bethesda. Once again, directed by Todd Howard. It released, I can't believe, already two years ago, uh, next month, in November of 2015, for the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Uh, the turnaround from the announcement of this game at E3 to then being released only, I think, five months later was quite incredible. Uh, but you've chosen Fallout 4, Michael. Is Fallout 4 as good as Fallout 3? Um, why are you taking it with you? You know, I actually don't think it's as good. Um, certainly better looking. Um, I think that what I like about the Bethesda guys is that they decided not to just make the same game over again. So they changed things up. Um, so there's more customization in the game, but, but less you know need to, say, repair weapons. You know, they got rid of things that I actually thought were kind of fun, but maybe not as popular in the first game. And they added things that I personally didn't find as fun, but maybe some did. You know, you could build your own uh, home base. You could you know, find scraps and build whatever you wanted. Um, but I, I actually liked the story. I mean, it was fun. And uh, something they changed up, you know, in, game, in Fallout 3, there were really only two paths you could go. You could play as a man or woman, but it was either evil or, or good. And in Fallout 4... There were multiple paths, so you could align yourself with various factions. Um, and I only played through it once, but I, you know, I made a choice in the game that I regretted, and I ended up going against the Brotherhood, and I didn't mean to, but I didn't realize when I made that choice that I could never go back, and you know, change the way the game played. And I and I can go back and play that game again and again. Um, I have not mostly because I've been busy and I've been trying other games. I found it to be close to as much fun as Fallout 3. Graphics clearly were much, much better. Um, And again, the story I thought was really interesting in Fallout 4. Uh, But the choices, you know, there were were so many alternative outcomes. I probably could play that game and choose a different path each time and be satisfied with that. In terms of like choosing a, you know, so, so many single player games and I think with uh, the first two you'd picked, there's a, an element of replayability in both of them. Uh, and, you know, Portal, trying the sort of infinite levels and the user creation and stuff like that. When it comes to Fallout 3 and Fallout 4, although they are massive games, they are very huge, wildly expansive games, but they are very story-focused. Usually on Final Games, people sort of tend to steer clear of these games unless they have that sort of nostalgia for them because they don't really have that replayability. Is that something you'd worry about going to a deserted island with just very story-heavy games? You know, I think that what makes these two stand out is that there's so much to do. So, you know, when I said on Fallout 3, I discovered everything on the map. In Fallout 4, I didn't. And I would be happy to spend months finding everything. I'd be happy to play through and choose a different faction each time and see if the outcome was as satisfactory. So I think there's enough replayability. And, and also, I have to give myself a break from puzzle games. And after a while, your head hurts. So, <laughs> so you know, these are more escape and, and 
and I, I, I find the story allows me to escape. Just that post-apocalyptic escape, you know, even though you're, you're on a tropical deserted island, you need uh, to escape into a post-apocalyptic world with super mute. <laughs> yeah, so we bring back it's nostalgia for living in L.A. <laughs> uh, the mutants and, and all exactly harvey weinstein <laughs> harvey weinstein lives here he's a, he looks like a mutant <laughs> in terms of like bethesda as a company and having these two mainline series like fallout and uh you know the elder scrolls with skyrim and we've seen so many different versions of skyrim now including the switch port that's coming next month and also the vr version um are you surprised when companies like that do so well and are so successful with what tends to be sort of generic titles like you know fantasy and post-apocalyptic but they the games are also very janky and they're they're quite buggy and they don't really do too much different from other companies essentially um but they are wildly successful yeah i think it's probably uh a function of obviously game quality i mean they do the same type of story and same type of missions but their games just have there's that you know uh, unidentifiable quality that you just know it's great um, but and then there's also a tribal element to it where people just love, you know, their favorite developer and they like everything that they make and they tend to just come back again and again and again. And, you know, the next Elder Scrolls, I think, is number six. So, you know, they've done it five times. I mean, how many Final Fantasies have we had? And people That's very people true. come back every time, you know, and how many Call of Duties have we had? And so, you know, I think that there's that element. But again, there's there's clearly a quality component, you know, and I, I would say that Blizzard has that as well. I mean, there's you know, if you look at Blizzard, if you look at World of Warcraft or, or Warcraft, the game before that, what is it? You know, it's Lord of the Rings. I mean, it, essentially, it's Lord of the Rings. And so, you know, did they really invent anything? Well, they did because they created their own world around it, and gamers love it. And because gamers love Warcraft and World of Warcraft, they embraced Starcraft, they embraced Diablo, they embraced Overwatch, they embraced Hearthstone. So, you know, once a developer, you know, resonates with with an audience, I think that they can take chances and try new things. And, you know, frankly, I think even a game like Wolfenstein will benefit just from association with Bethesda. You know, so I, I think these guys can do no wrong. I love them, by the way. And Todd Howard is about the nicest guy in the games industry, which is saying quite a bit because there are so many nice people in the industry. That's excellent to hear. Um, I think it's about time we move on to your next game then. Uh, I think Fallout, the position and stance on Fallout is very reasonable and it's very interesting to hear people's different takes on whether to take these story-driven games or these, you know, endless replayable games that we're seeing a lot more now in the games industry especially in terms of going to a deserted island but the next game you've chosen is very much along the lines of fallout and i think is even shorter and is a lot more limited and it's a series myself that i've never really clicked with so i'm very interested to hear your thoughts on the next game so let's listen to some music from the next game and let's of course dive straight into it
The next game on Michael's list then is an action adventure video game that's developed by one of the other video game giants being Ubisoft. It's uh, a game that released on the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, PC, and pretty much, uh, I think, also received HD re-releases um, for the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One as well. It originally released back in 2009 and is a sequel to the first in the series, Assassin's Creed, and it's the first of the Ezio trilogy. It's Assassin's Creed 2. Michael, why are you taking specifically Assassin's Creed 2? It's funny. I played Assassin's Creed 1, and I thought it was fun, but I didn't really care you know like I kind of I think I might have finished the main quest but I didn't think that the setting was that interesting and Assassin's Creed 2 probably just because of my studies and I actually knew where you know where it took place I I thought that the just the setting was really fascinating Um, I somehow was motivated to explore everything Uh, I thought that you know they did a really good job in putting clues in and so there was a puzzle element to the game that i found fascinating i forgot what they call it because it's probably been five years since i played it but um there were you had to solve uh it wasn't the masons what are the things you had to solve a puzzle and it took me probably 80 hours to solve really fun to do so i think that unlike most you know melee fighting stealth games this had that puzzle element that just made it much, much more interesting to me to play. And I probably could go in a couple of years and then try it again, and it would be new to me again. So I I, I don't know. Something about it I just enjoyed doing. And, and I didn't feel that way about Assassin's Creed Black Flag, for example, although the sea battles were fun. What about moving into Egypt then? A, a very sort of interesting historical space. And also surprisingly i think for a lot of people uh they're more excited about this one because it changes that assassin's creed formula to be a little more like an rpg i think people have got very i don't want to say sick and tired but definitely it's become a rote series uh very similar gameplay as you said before you were talking about series that don't change very much um assassin's creed i think has been a series that hasn't changed very much at all but with this new one you know they're seemingly changing it up it's going to be this big expensive open world uh rpg elements and all that kind of stuff are you excited about that one yeah i'd say i'd say that i'd say that one was good two actually perfected what they tried to do in one and then three four and five maybe there was a six or seven um were just the same so i didn't feel like they did anything different i'm very excited about origins and i think that if we were doing this a year from now, I might have Origins on the list instead of two. But, I mean, obviously we have to see if they do a good job. But it looks phenomenal, and I will play it. Will that be this this year's game that you yes. get addicted to and can't stop playing? Well, we'll see. I, I think so. And, again, uh, I, you know, I don't know what, if there's anything coming out that I'm dying to play. Like, I could care less about Star Wars. Um, I do care about Call of Duty World War II because, you know, that was beginning of Call of Duty, and I, I thought that was super fun. And I frankly think the Sledgehammer guys are, are underrated. I think they really, really do a good job. Um, this one looks like it's just got great weapons, great graphics. Looks like there's a story there. Um, I mean, I remember playing uh, Medal of Honor Allied Assault and loving it. So I think that uh, World War II would be really fun. But again, I'm a single-player guy. Um, so you know, Assassin's Creed is probably 
Excellent. Well, I think oh, Mario, Mario, I, I'm Mario sorry. might be. So, yeah, Mario. Mario's coming out this week. I take that back. Yeah, I'm definitely playing Mario <laughs> Odyssey. I forgot. I was going to say, Mario and Cappy, they might have tears running down their eyes at the, the thought of that. <laughs> but going back to Assassin's Creed 2 then and talking about that and taking it with you. Um, it's funny because I'm not really a big fan of the Assassin's Creed series. I never really got into it. Um, I played 2 and I absolutely despised Ezio as a character. Uh. I think he's such a he's such a brat. I, I really don't like him. But... Uh, is it Brotherhood, the game that came after the second in the SEO trilogy when he was sort of grown up? And that's the only one I, I really kind of liked, and I actually did finish that one. Um, do you like Ezio? Did you like his like trilogy, his story? Did you finish all three of those games? Oh, I did not. No, I probably played each of the others by for an hour, maybe two. So no, didn't go far, very far at all. Um, I thought that they kind of looked the same as two, which is, I think, why I didn't. Where Fallout 4 was di- sufficiently different from Fallout 3 that it was interesting to continue the story. Um, I didn't care about it. I mean, I, I, I think I feel the same way as most gamers that the Assassin's Creed series was repetitive and redundant. So, no, I, didn't, I did not finish any of those games. Wow. You can play Origins and see where it all started, and then maybe you'll be inclined to go back and uh, check it, <laughs> check out Ezio's story and finish it. <laughs> well, speaking of Mario, um, we haven't really talked about Nintendo at all yet, and um, you you are known to have very strong opinions on Nintendo and the choices they make as a company over the years. Um, so I think it's about time we start talking about Nintendo a little bit. So let's listen to some fantastic music from this next game. And let's, of course, dive straight into it. So, yes, of course, this week is the week when Super Mario Odyssey comes out. And I personally am incredibly excited for Super Mario Odyssey. It looks fantastic. Um, I have been wanting a sort of Super Mario 64 successor for a very long time. Uh, This game sort of was along that similar vein, but it was more of a 3D world, I think, kind of thing. It's still a fantastic game. Uh, The game that you're actually going to take with you, not Odyssey, because it's not quite out yet. Um, but the game you're going to take with you is a game developed by Nintendo EAD Tokyo, directed by Kozumi-san, who is the face of Nintendo Switch and also of Mario Odyssey. It's a game that released back in 2007, 10 years ago, and it still looks fantastic, sounds fantastic. It's one of the best Wii games. It's the platformer Super Mario Galaxy. Michael, 
Yeah. Why are you taking Super Mario Galaxy? And please tell me a little more about your thoughts about Nintendo right now. Uh, other than uh, Wii Sports, Mario Galaxy is the only game I actually played on the Wii that I that played longer <laughs> than 10 minutes. Um, and, and, you know, it's funny. I You mentioned Super Mario 64. Um, that game really moved me and might have been on the list if I had not played Galaxy. Um, I didn't feel the same way about Mario Sunshine. It was fun, but it was kind of dumb. Um, Galaxy, I just thought they took Mario to the next level. And I, you know, again, if you think about Mario, it's essentially a puzzle game as well. I mean, you're getting through levels, but you have to solve them. And that, I think that the construct, the construction of the game is just super intelligent. Um, you know, they're challenging games. I, I, I agree that, you know, this one doesn't have a ton of replayability either. But if I leave it on the shelf, and this one's been on the shelf at my house for eight or nine years, um, I think I could start all over again and enjoy it. And this is one of the very few games that I actually cheated to finish uh, because I you know, was on the mission to collect all the stars. And I guess there were three green stars, and I could not figure out where the third one was. And so I had to go online to find it because I did not know where it was. Um, and this is, I think, the first game I ever went online for a solution to. So I've done it since because I'm lazy. But, uh, <laughs> well, and again, you know, the, the third star was like inside a rock at the beginning of some level in the middle of the game. Though I'm sure that wasn't the third star. The third star I found it was probably the second or first star. Um, but, but it was a rock that you had no reason to break. And, you know, of course, but if you broke it, there was a star. Um, and that's that's something I like about Nintendo, that, that it's not always intuitive and you're not going to actually find things. So, you know, so they have these, um, you know, these little Easter eggs kind of like that kind of hidden that you, you otherwise wouldn't find unless you got into the community. So again, I just found the game challenging and fun and satisfying. And, you know, I, I learned the, the life of a Wiimote, you know, battery because I, I played it that many hours in a row. Um, so, you know, just, yeah, fun game. And I, and I would play it again. So, oh, you asked about Nintendo. So, Nintendo yeah. now, you know, the, the problem they have now is that the Wii U only sold 13 or 14 million units. Um, so, they really haven't made much money on console software in a while because they just couldn't sell that many copies. Um, the Switch is, is popular, but it will only have, you know, according to them, 12 million by year end. And, you know, even if they're overproduced by two or three million, they're not going to sell that many copies of games until they get an install base of 30 or 40 or 50 million. Um, I do think that Super Mario Odyssey will attach at a one-to-one rate to the Switch. So they'll sell a ton. But, uh, you know, again, it's not going to be 50 million. This game won't outsell Grand Theft Auto V until there are 80 million Switch units out there, which is not going to happen for several years. So, you know, they're fine. Nintendo's not losing money, but they're not going to make as much, you know, in profit as they did at the peak of the Wii years. Um, the thing I think that they're doing right, this, this console launch, is they're getting software out at a pretty good clip, you know, to support the yeah. hardware. So that's good. I mean, having a Zelda game and a, a, a brand new Zelda game and a brand new Mario game within the same year is kind of unprecedented for them. And, you know, even the ports that are coming back, like Mario Kart 8, um, that's good enough, you know, to support the console. Uh, and, and games like Splatoon 2, which have limited appeal, are still great. 
there's enough content coming out that I think the Switch uh, Switch purchaser won't feel like he's being cheated. There's plenty to do. Well, that's what I was going to say, actually. I was going to say, do you feel like Odyssey will shift units? Or is everyone who's really going to play Odyssey right now who wants a Switch already got one because of Breath of the Wild? Um, or no, do you see, everybody. like, there is these people who have waited for Odyssey to come out and are now going to rush to go get a Switch to play Odyssey? Well, for two reasons, the latter. Um, one is that not everybody could get a Switch, and not everybody was willing to pay a premium for it. So, sure. I mean, I think that there are a ton of people who either don't have money or who are too cheap to buy consoles and wait for them to be given as a gift. You know, so Christmas is coming and Odyssey's timing is perfect. You know, it's the end of October and heading a month later, people are going to be buying switches for Christmas presents. And two months later, they're going to be opening the package under the tree. So I think that uh, Odyssey will outsell Zelda. Uh, and Zelda's a different kind of game. I mean, you have to be a disciplined gamer to play Zelda, and you don't have to be that disciplined to play Mario. Mario is fun. Um, some people will argue with me and say it's 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 just as hard, but I think Zelda is a much more complicated game to play than Mario. I think so too, and I think Mario has that sort of broader appeal a lot more than Zelda. I think a lot of people within the video game industry, obviously Nintendo are synonymous with Zelda and Mario, but Mario has that much more international and mainstream appeal that I think will bring in a lot of people, especially considering how amazingly friendly and quite exotic that Odyssey looks like. It looks really fun and fresh and new, um, which is kind of a first for Mario, I think, in a long time. Even with Galaxy, Galaxy, you know, had this space theme that wasn't quite for everyone, whereas Odyssey has, like, all of these different kingdoms, all of these different animals and creatures and things that you can play with. I think maybe it's going to appeal to a lot of people. And, and again, if you ask the typical you know, gift giver to name the main character in a Mario game, they will look at you crazy and say, well, it's Mario. If you ask them to name the main character in a Zelda game, unfortunately, about half of them will say, it's Zelda, and it's not. So I, I think most moms have no idea, you know, that Link is the character in Zelda. I mean, I remember before I played my first Zelda game, I thought Zelda looked an awful lot like a blonde boy. You know, so I mean, who, who knew? Um, and I, I'm, I am kidding. <laughs> I am kidding. But but you know, that's the thing is, that I I think the name Zelda to a non gamer means nothing. You know, they don't know what it is. And Mario, just Mario is an iconic character and everybody knows who Mario is. But you also know about Zelda and I think uh, we'll talk a little bit about Zelda some more in your next choice, which happens to be the second to last game on the list, which is quite sad because I'm enjoying very much listening to you and your thoughts on Nintendo as well. Um, But before we get ready to ship you away off to the tropical island of Delfino, uh, another Mario-oriented thing. We're going to have to talk a little bit about Zelda some more. So let's listen to some fantastic music from one of the most iconic games of all time. And let's dive straight into the second to last game on Michael's list.
So we've spoken about Mario and we talked a little bit about Zelda, but now we are going to focus solely on Zelda. And of course, but it's not Breath of the Wild. <laughs> As you mentioned, you played Breath of the Wild for about three hours and uh, sort of started again and that kind of thing. So I don't think it's going to be Breath of the Wild, even though Breath of the Wild has already, even in its short time, not even one year of release has appeared on this show quite a few times already. Um, but this is the 3D remake of one of the most famous Zelda games of all time, Ocarina of Time. It's the 3D remake for the 3DS that released back in 2011, developed by Grezzo and Nintendo EAD Tokyo, same team behind Super Mario Galaxy. It is Ocarina of Time 3D. Michael. Yes. Why are you taking Ocarina of Time with you? It's quite surprising. I didn't think Zelda would be your bag. Well, I wanted a uh, backup plan in case power went out on the island and I couldn't play console or PC games. So I figured my handheld, I'd always have a supply of batteries and I could play them. I don't know that they're actually rechargeable. Um, but I thought that that was probably the most fun uh, DS, 3DS game I've ever played. Um, I actually almost put down Super Mario Brothers 3, which was also probably my second favorite handheld game. I wanted a handheld game in there just in case, you know, I was out on a boat fishing and I had time to kill couldn't take my console or my PC with me. Um, I think I have a soft spot for Ocarina of Time because it is the first Zelda game I played. Uh, I guess I was on 64. Gosh, that's been 20 years probably. Um, but I just, it, it's the first one that really moved me from Nintendo. Otherwise, you know, it was Donkey Kong and I wasn't moved by that. So, you know, this was the first game I really thought the story was interesting. Um, I thought that, again, uh, it's a puzzle-driven game. The puzzles are super fun. And I know Breath of the Wild has the same uh, same kind of feel, but obviously much, much more modern. Um, but again, I wanted a 3DS game on the list because I play my 3DS, and I just this one and Super Mario 3 are the two. This, I know, is, is in my 3DS right now. I know this is the game that I've got loaded currently, and there's a ton of Fantastic. Well, are you a fan of the Zelda franchise anyway? Did you play like Ocarina of Time when it originally came out on the N64? You said you had a soft spot for Mario 64. Yeah, Wind Waker I didn't play long at all. I, I didn't care for it. Um, Ocarina of Time was the first game that made me realize that Nintendo was special. And I, you know that's late because I had an NES and a Super NES. But um, I remember Super Mario 64 was the first game that just blew me away because of the graphics. And then the next was Ocarina of Time. I just, I, I realized Nintendo is the best game maker on the planet. Those two games really got me. And I liked Zelda enough to buy it again on 3DS and play it all the way through. And I could play that game again and again and again. Is it difficult to sort of judge these Japanese companies, and especially Nintendo, a company that often makes these sort of what seems like backwards thinking choices like you especially as an analyst and someone who has to talk about this stuff and also as you said you know you think Nintendo are the greatest game maker on the planet which is something I actually agree with as well um but sometimes it's like you have to hold your hands up and you're like huh I don't know why they decided to do that or and you're kind of just like criticizing them because they make these decisions 
uh, how difficult is it to be an analyst and be like, why are they doing this? If they do it this way, then they could do this and it would be so much better. I want to forgive them, but ah, blah, 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 kind of thing. I, you know, I actually am not a fan of Nintendo as a company and as a stock. Um, they make a lot of really dumb decisions. And <laughs> they do. And I guess the, the thing we should all like about them as gamers is that they, they are focused laser focus on single player games um, a lot of people criticize them for not doing a good job of multiplayer and you know they don't they're not historically you know they, they don't develop games that lend themselves to multiplayer other than games like mario kart and smash brothers you know, those games obviously you can fight somebody else or you can race somebody else but every, i think their dna is single player games and you know as we said earlier i personally love single player games it's just not where the business is right now so you know a lot of the criticism of nintendo is that it's matchmaking is just a second thought you know in their game games and getting online is a pain and you know they just they're just not very good at the network and and building a multiplayer presence um, they'll figure it out over time but you know but they're an insular company uh they're in japan so they're not hiring you know engineers from microsoft and sony to help them figure it out they're not hiring level designers from activision to help them figure it out so you know it'll take them another several years i think to get multiplayer right it's ways because even as a fan myself it's sometimes just so difficult to defend some of the decisions they make <laughs> and um but with the switch it seems um it's easy to say that this year alone, you know, the ports and the games that they're releasing and the, the way they're treating, they've made some mistakes with the Switch. Obviously, the online, there's no virtual console. There's all of these still glaring issues, but they sort of plaster over the cracks a little with releasing games like Breath of the Wild, Splatoon 2, and Mario Odyssey. Is it a Japanese thing or is it just Nintendo as a company? You know, I, I'm I'm far from an expert on Japanese games, but you know, I, I I'm not aware of very many, if any, that are wildly successful multiplayer experiences. So I would say it's cultural, that you know, and again, I don't know the Japanese gamer market very well, but I don't think that it's a large multiplayer market. I think it tends to be a single player market, and so I think culturally, that's what you know. I think they believe their core customer is a Japanese. And if their core customer is Japanese, then they're going to make games that, that delight that core customer. And I don't think they care that most Americans and many Europeans prefer to play multiplayer. Again, that makes me happy because I prefer single player and I'm glad that they keep giving me great experiences. That's very true. And uh, as someone who lives in Japan and sees the sort of Japanese market, it is definitely more focused towards single player still, I think. But there are so many games out there now, especially in Japan, that are so successful that are cooperative focused multiplayer games. Like Japan is not very known or, and or embraces competitive gaming very well. Japanese people like to work together. That's why games like Monster Hunter is, is so successful and games along that similar vein. But Nintendo don't tend to make cooperative games very often. Um, or they're these sort of, uh, you know, like even with Mario Odyssey, it has a co-op mode, but one of them is controlling a hat and it's like, that's not really <laughs> multiplayer and that's not like 
actual competitive actual cooperative multiplayer which is weird because they definitely do focus themselves towards the japanese market but they don't change trends in in terms of looking towards what is actually popular in japan i think single player is still very very popular and always will be in japan but definitely like the big games out there are like monster hunter and and stuff like that that is like this cooperative play with your friends kind of experience yeah and again you're right co-op is not competitive and and you know i told you i left uh left for dead off my list because i wasn't sure if i could play co-op on the island but that's my favorite co-op game and and portal 2 the co-op mode is is absolutely a blast so yeah i think that that's the way to migrate toward multiplayer is you know get good at co-op first and then the Japanese market will eventually, you know, evolve into a multiplayer market, just because you know people are people. And, and but again, culturally, competition might not be something that's that's as accepted in uh, in Japanese culture. And I don't know. It definitely isn't because even when you go to arcades, a lot of them are these now. You know, the the fighting game genesis has kind of disappeared, and a lot of these games are now like team based, cooperative versus. AI experiences or against other players as a team, not really one-on-one fight each other kind of experiences. And um, yeah, it's kind of strange. Um, I don't know why Japan is that way. Uh, It's always sort of been to look after each other and help each other. Um, Just different culture, I guess. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying. (laughs) I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But we're going to have to move on now to the last game on your list, unfortunately. And we're going to get ready to send you away with these eight games to the Delfino Island, to the Tropical Island, where you can just relax and play Plants vs. Zombies and shoot some mutants and all that kind of thing for the next foreseeable future. Uh, And the last game that you're going to be taking with you is a surprising one. So let's listen to some music from it. And let's, of course, dive straight into it. So jumping into the last game now on Michael's list, the final of his final games, and it's a very surprising one, and I'm not quite sure which one it is that you're taking, whether it's the browser version of this game or the the sequel to the browser game that was the one that was popular on mobile phones. Okay, so the browser game you're going to be taking with you is... a. And I fear to say the name of the of the game, considering the sort of negative backlash in which this game is portray is portrayed many many times. Um, the final game you're going to be taking with you, Michael, and it's the first time, and I think probably the only time it will ever appear on this show. It's Candy Crush. 
There you go. Yeah, you Candy know, that's so crush. funny. That's because you uh, you only invite snobs onto your show. <laughs> We've had Cookie Clicker on here before. Yeah, this game is uh, Candy Crush. There's a reason that 300 million people play Candy Crush. And, uh, you know, the reason I said browser, on my phone, the game only goes to level 2275 or so. Um, and I'm a couple of hundred levels above that. So it, it goes to currently probably level 2550 or so. And there, there are 15 new levels every week. Um, for a long, for the longest time, from level 400 to level 2000, I was always done with the game. I, I finished it and waited until new levels appeared. And then I took a few months off in the summer and let the levels get ahead of me so I can, uh, I can consistently catch up. But I have to play them on, the, on my laptop or my desktop because uh, it doesn't go high enough on my phone. And what I love about Candy Crush is that each puzzle is a new challenge. Um, as, you, as you work your way through the levels, they add different things to do. And the level design is clever. Um, and I have to say, you know, unlike a mindless game where you just, you know, are button mashing and trying to just get through, this one, I actually take a look at each level. I, I stare at them for 20 or 30 seconds before I try to solve them. And I tend to figure out combinations. You know, the timed levels are tough, but the ones that aren't timed, um, I will stare at a level. It might take me five or six minutes to go through 30 or 40 moves trying to figure out what the best move is. So I, I find it to be a, an extremely satisfying puzzle game. And there's a sense of accomplishment, you know, getting through the level and getting the, a very high score. And there's tons of replayability. I've gone back. Uh, I went back on probably to seven or eight or 900 levels trying to be the highest score among all my friends. Um, so, yeah, I, I've, I get a great deal of satisfaction out of playing the game. And having played through 2,400 levels, I'm certain I have more hours in Candy Crush than I do in Fallout 3. <laughs> well, it's I think it's obviously the most replayable game on your list. And the one that would make sense going to a deserted island, even considering the game that it is. Um, have you spent... Can you spend money on the browser game? Oh, can that... can and have. You know, I I, uh, I went about three hundred levels, and this is when the game only went to level four hundred. Uh, so three or four years ago, I went to I went to, to level three hundred without spending money, um, and I was going to be one of those people who just said I can finish the game without spending money. And you know, I met with the company uh, when they were going public; they hadn't yet, and they put out a statistic that 70% of the people who had finished the game had done so without spending money. And I thought, oh, I can do that. Um, and then they started giving me free stuff. And it, it was the the offering of free um, what they call boosters in the game that actually got me to spend money. And the reason was that you know they, they started out with a, a wheel, a booster wheel, and you spin it every day and get one free booster. So I did that for a couple of months, and I had you know sixty or seventy free boosters, and then I got stuck on a level for about three weeks, and I, I don't know which level, but I couldn't beat it, and I kept trying, and you know you have a set number of moves, and I would be like four or five moves away from beating it, and I wasn't going to buy extra moves, and anyway, I got down to with I was 
one move away from beating a level and I had one move left except that I didn't have the right combination. I couldn't beat it and I've been trying for three weeks. So I started using my boosters and I probably burned through 10 of them. I didn't even know what they did. I burned through 10, 10 different boosters before I figured out how to beat the level and I was really satisfied and I hadn't spent money. And then, I don't know, 30, 40 levels later, same thing happened. I burned through 10 more boosters. Then 34, 40 levels later, same thing. Then one day I found myself out of boosters and I knew what I needed to beat the level. So I bought one because, shoot, if I hadn't have burned through all those 60 free ones, I would have had the free booster. And so I justified purchasing one. And ever since then, I've spent money just because I feel like if I put that many hours into a game, they deserve to profit from it. So I spend about probably two or three hundred dollars a year on Candy Crush. And wow! Yeah, it's fun. And uh, I will say, <laughs> the farther the farther you go in the game, it's impossible to get through levels without using boosters. So again, they keep innovating. Um, if if you ever, as soon as you beat a level, you start the next level with a booster already activated in the game. If you beat the sec that next level on the first try. You start the next one with two free boosters already activated in the game. You can't you can't avoid it. They're there. If you beat the next level, you have three free boosters and, and so on. So it ends up that you'll get to a level and you'll have three or four boosters to start the level. And if you fail, you really can't beat the level without using boosters. So you know, again, I'm sure you can. I'm sure if I played each each one fifty or sixty times, I'd figure it out. But they kind of get get the user addicted to using boosters so it's very clever and and again i'm just doing it for fun like sometimes i don't care i just want to get through the level because i'm I, i'm tired of it and i want to move on to something different very fun though good game are you going to be okay on a deserted island with no cash being having to defeat these later levels oh sure or is it going to be impossible no nope. nope. i i uh if nothing else i'll just go back a few thousand levels play every level to get three stars so there's a game called uh, two dots which is my other favorite mobile game and uh i i I was at the end of that game and i kept finishing it and the the developers take forever they they add about you know 100 new levels but they do it you know only every few months and so i i finished the game a couple of times and actually met the developers and complained to them how slow they were Anyway, someone, uh, one of my friends is an investor in the company, and he told another investor about me because the other investors finished every level as well. Um, and the guy was ahead of me by 20 or 30 levels and bragging. And so I showed him that I have three stars on every single level, which is the next <laughs> one get. And it's because I, I'm not satisfied beating a level in that game with one star. I have to finish it with three, or I, or I don't move, move ahead. So you know, that game I highly recommend. It's not one of my top eight because they don't add new levels fast enough. But uh, that one's super fun. And again, replayability to get three stars. It, it, you can play each level. Sometimes they take me 20 or 30 tries to get three stars. But I know there's a way to do it, and I'm going to do it. So Candy Crush that's is good, that. I would do that in Candy Crush. Yeah, that's a good amount of time, a good chunk of time there to play. Well, you can take Candy Crush with you, the browser-based game, and you can take the rest of the seven games that you've chosen with you, the very eclectic and wonderful single-player list that you've chosen. And we're going to get ready to ship you away now, which is quite a shame because I've really enjoyed having you on the show, Michael. Thank Thank you you so much for coming on today. Of course. Um, 
There is one last question I have to ask you before you go, though. And it's the same question I ask all my guests before they set out um, to their deserted place with their games. And uh, we talk a lot about games on Final Games, of course. Um, but one thing that's important, I think you'll agree, is the consoles in which we play games on. Uh, I think as an analyst yourself and having to compare the specs and the, the reasons to purchase a console and helping these companies sort of appeal to consumers is very important. Um, but if you could only take one console with you to the deserted place with you, thinking of the back catalog and the way you play the console and how it works and all those wonderful features a console can have, if you could only take one console with you, what would you take? You know, I probably would take the not yet released Xbox One X, uh, because I think that the 4K graphics is probably worth it. Um, and Microsoft has done a, quite a bit on backward compatibility, so you know there there are games like Red Dead Redemption, you know from oh, I'm sorry from 2010 that you can play on that. And they're obviously they've made uh, older games like like Elder Scrolls playable. Um, I actually really like. Xbox um, Live, I guess it's arcade or whatever, but the but the ten dollar twenty dollar download games. Um, of course, I want to play Plants vs Zombies. I personally really want to play PUBG on the console. Um, so even though I suck and I will die quickly, um, so I think that would be the one. You know, it's funny. I play far more on my PS4 Pro right now, and probably the same reason. The graphics are really great on that thing. Um, but it, you know, and again, I, I don't play virtual reality PSVR that often, although Resident Evil Seven was phenomenal. But I would, uh, I would, I think the Xbox One X would be the one I pick. Excellent. Well, it's a very surprising choice, um, considering sort of. I think a lot of people would think PlayStation is sort of dominating the space at the moment in terms of those large AAA titles. Forgetting the Switch and what the Switch is doing, but those large AAA titles and the this, the exclusives that they have on there um but you can we we can i mean it's not out now you might have connections to be able to get yourself a scorpio or an x quite early but uh we'll have to wait until it's released so we're going to ship you away now and then you can receive it next year on its release how's that sound actually i think there's one sitting in my office right now but <laughs> they, they told me last week they were shipping it to me so i probably have it i haven't been in the office yet <laughs> wow then we, you can take that one then uh, which is great um michael thank you so much for appearing on the show today it's been an absolute pleasure please tell the wonderful listeners who have listened so far where they can find you on the internet uh, and what they should be checking out of yours or anything that you would like to link them to oh you know i, I do a weekly blog on sifted.net um which is also on youtube so youtube with my name and you'll find it pretty quickly um, I'm on Twitter at Michael Pactor and uh, can always use some more followers just because it's a good ego boost. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I promise if you say anything that's that's like nasty, I'll just mute you. I don't block anybody. I just mute them so I have to put up with their BS. Um, so you, you can read what I say. And I, you know, I don't think I'm all that interesting on Twitter, but every once in a while I say something pithy or clever. <laughs> excellent well you can follow michael on twitter and you should do it's very interesting especially when we get news like we had last week with the ea closing visceral 
games down and that kind of stuff. Definitely check out that. But thank you so much for listening to this episode of Final Games. I know it was a little late coming, uh, but thank you for bearing with me and listening. You can, as always, find Final Games on iTunes if you search Final Games or in the Games and Hobbies section on iTunes. If you are there, why not just rate and review as well? That would be fantastic. The show is 5 out of 5 out of 60 plus reviews now which is quite an incredible average so thank you so much to everyone who's done that you can also find the show on soundcloud soundcloud.com forward slash final games podcast um and it's on stitcher acast and all the other podcasting networks um you can also find me on twitter at liam bme where i talk mainly about video games and japan and other random stuff like that and you can also find the show at final games show on twitter too so thank you so much for checking out this episode of Final Games, and thank you so much to Michael for joining me. We'll see you again next time. Goodbye.